I don't know about you, but I love it when the Bible speaks directly to an issue that I need to hear the Bible's teaching on. There is nothing more enjoyable to me than when a sermon, a book that's reflecting on the Bible, or even my own personal quiet time, when I see something in the Bible and I realize, wow, that actually can work in my life. Like that intersection between the Bible and my life really is the beautiful power of what the scriptures can do. One of the reasons I love being a pastor, one of the reasons I love this church is because our mission of igniting a passion to follow Jesus means that we try to take the weekly application of God's word and figure out how to make it work in the real world in which we live. Sometimes that process of translating the Bible into life is more incremental, happens slowly in subtle ways. At other times, we read the Bible and we're like, wow, this works like right now, like I needed that. Last week, we talked about the issues of quarrels, fights, controversies. If you weren't here last week, I used an illustration about an umbrella. I received many offers to help you move things this week, and I declined them all. Someone even sent me a text yesterday and said, hey, we're moving an umbrella out to our back porch. We wanted to know if you, that's like, mute. The questions I wanted you to ask were, what do I love, what frustrates me, and where might pride be involved? And some of you even sent me little screenshots of what you did with posting that on a computer monitor, things of that sort. I love that. I love, not the request to come help you move your umbrella, but I love that you're listening. I love that we're trying to figure out, look, how do we make this work? Last week the question was, where do quarrels come from? This week the question is, okay, what else do we need to do? And James four verses four to six are both really pointed and really hopeful. So James is going to be really blunt. He's also going to give you some hope. And this morning what I want to do is walk you through this text and help you to see two critical points as James furthers this argument about our words, our controversies, and our conflicts. And he identifies that number one, we need to take this seriously. And number two, that we need to humbly seek God's grace. So the the lesson from today is simply this, that James is calling us to be sure that we understand the issue that we're dealing with, and this is serious, and then figure out how do I seek God's help as I navigate through a complicated and conflict-filled world. So number one, James calls us here to take this seriously. Verse four is rather shocking. James says, you adulterous people, wow. Imagine if I started my sermon that. Good morning, welcome to College Park. You adulterous people, listen up. Why is James doing this? Well, he wants there to be an awareness of the importance of this message. And this isn't the only time that James has used pointed words. He says in 1 verse 26 that religion without controlling the tongue is worthless. He 
calls his readers foolish in chapter two and verse 20 when they separated faith and work. So we're not unfamiliar with James's blunt words. But you need to know that he's not calling them names. Instead, what he's trying to do is identify that this issue of quarrels and fights and all of the things that are underneath it is really serious. It's really serious. And part of the reason he does that is because it's easy in the midst of a world in which we live with hearts that are set on the wrong things and getting frustrated and angry that our tendency is to justify sinful behavior when we know we shouldn't be acting a particular way. Maybe in the midst of a conflict you found yourself saying to a friend, a spouse, a colleague, why are we doing this? I know this isn't right, but in a moment we kind of lose our minds. And he's, he's reminding us that this is serious. It's dangerous. This kind of words, these kind of words rather, this kind of tone is appropriate given the nature of what's at stake here. Think, for example, of how you would perceive a dad who's walking his children from the Chipotle restaurant to the car, walking through the parking lot, holding their hands, and a son breaks free of that grip and he begins to sprint across the parking lot, not seeing a car coming around the corner through the drive through It would be appropriate for that dad to say, stop! Hold my hand! Come here! If you're mid-burrito looking out the window watching him, you'd think that's a good dad. The urgency of the moment necessitated a sharp rebuke. On the other hand, imagine if a dad is walking his kids to the car, they make it safely all the way to the vehicle, and in that moment they're carrying the drinks, and those drink, that carrier, drink carrier um, sort of implodes, the, Drinks fall, they hit the pavement, they spill all over the place, and you hear the dad say, stop! At that moment, you look at that scenario and go, that's not right. And the difference is the urgency and the seriousness of the issue involved. So the dynamics of what's happening and the seriousness of what's at stake factor into the words and the tone that is used, and that's why James says, adulterous people. You need to know, though, he doesn't have sexual ethics in mind. James isn't calling out sexual immorality. Rather, what he's doing is using a familiar Old Testament metaphor when it comes to God's relationship with his people. See, God views himself as the husband and views his people as his bride. And so what James is doing here is using this familiar Old Testament metaphor. He's writing to Jewish Christians who know of God's reference of the people of God as his bride. He's trying to remind them that this sort of waywardness with our words and the waywardness with our conflicts is tantamount to idolatry. Calling them adulterous people is one of the ways in which God attempts through James to shock his people, realizing that you know how you might feel if someone committed adultery on you? That's how I feel when you act like you don't belong to me. It's as though God is saying, you know the pain of adultery? That's what I feel when you worship other gods by virtue of allowing your conflicts to rule your life. The entire book of Hosea carries this theme. Hosea 3.1 says, And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. 
So James is using this term, adulterous people, to help them realize the significance of what's happening. And the reason he does so is because it is so easy for us to allow self-centeredness and pride to creep in such that we love the wrong things. We give in to our frustrations, even find ways to manipulate others or God. And all the while thinking, I have every right in the world to act this way. And James cuts right through it, helping us to realize that minimizing or excusing our sinful fights or our sinful quarrels is awful. Realizing that we might live in a world that's filled with them and it seems to be so normal. And yet James wants us to realize that to act this way is really to have hearts that are set on the wrong thing. He continues and he says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to make himself a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That word friend means brotherly affection. It's another word for love. It's the kind of affection and orientation that you might feel if you walk into a room and you see a friend and you are drawn toward them because of your common bond. You see somebody who you're connected to and you go talk to them because you haven't seen them in a while or they feel like a safe place. The, the, the commonality of your relationship caused there to be a draw between you. And James is aware of our temptation to flirt with the world's way of doing things. That's why he says, friendship with the world. The idea is I have a leaning to act in a way that fits with people who don't even have an orientation toward the person and work of Jesus. A few weeks ago, I called this the dark arts. And it's something that we have to be continually mindful about because it's so easy and so tempting to act like everyone else and then to justify it. This week I read a very interesting comment from a former leader of a denomination. He wrote this, I hate the politics of my denomination. I don't say that as an outsider, I say that as an insider these last four years. Some of the lowest points in my leadership have been when I found myself participating in them. Jockeying for position, continual self-promotion, backroom deals followed by spin in the front room, strategizing like brothers are your enemy, feeling like others see you as their enemy. Getting to the point where you wonder if you can trust anyone even as you start to wonder how trustworthy you've become. I want to urge you by the grace of God, with the help of God, to rise above it for the mission of God and for the glory of God. I, I share this quote with you not to throw shade on denominations, but for all of us to realize how crazy easy it is to play that game. James is issuing a really strong warning here. He knows the tug, he understands the temptation. I mean, for crying out loud, he lives in Jerusalem. It's the seat of religious and political power. James knows the levers that human beings try to pull, and he warns us to be mindful of both where we live and what our posture is as it relates to the world and its ways. To be a friend of the world is to love the things of the world, it's to love the value sets of the world, it's to love what the world loves. It means that you have a greater affection for the pleasures of life than the pleasures of God. It's 
often connected to money, position, and power. And the challenge is, is that there's nothing inherently wrong with these things. If you have money, if you have position, if you have power, if you have influence, praise God for that. But don't let that become the thing that then you use to make you like everybody else in the world if you are a follower of Jesus. When we allow the subtleties of our idolatry to inform how we act, especially when we're involved in conflict or afraid, that's when the spiritual orientation of our hearts really matter. Friendship with the world emerges in many ways, and James wants us to know this is serious. That's why he says, you adulterers. He then says, look at verse five, do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the scriptures say he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? This text is essentially saying that God has placed within you a spirit. And something is his Holy Spirit, I don't think so, which is why the ESV doesn't capitalize it. The idea is that God, as a follower of Christ, has placed within you an orientation, a, a spirit that's headed a particular direction, but there's a war that's going on within you. And if you're not a Christian, you know the war. If you are a Christian, you know the war as well, even after you come to faith in Christ. And what this text is saying, that for those of us who are Christians, God sees the internal war, and it's as though he's pleading with us, begging us, don't go there, don't be like that, don't give in to that temptation. Instead, come to the other side. And maybe that you're listening to this message today and you're not yet a Christian. Perhaps you know and understand this internal turmoil. You, you do things that you don't want to do, and it's crazy, even though you know, I've been here, I've done that, I know how this ends, but I still keep going back and back and back and back. And one of the hopeful things that could take place is a realization of you kind of hitting the wall of your own self-sufficiency and coming to the place where you realize, I need help. And the Bible says, then come to Jesus. Because he, by his spirit, can change the orientation of your heart, can change the inclinations of what it is that you love. For those of you that are Christians, can I just remind you that we, we not only need to feel the weight of James's words, we need to realize the world in which we live and when conflicts arise and when desires are strong, when opinions are many and when fears rise up, we need to ask ourselves, who really is my God? James wants us to take this seriously. Second thing is he wants us to humbly seek his grace. So if you're feeling a little bit overwhelmed with the heaviness of this text, then quite frankly, then you're rightly understanding it. I've intentionally not put any sort of light illustration in point one because I think it detracts from the point of what James is trying to do. He's trying to help you take this seriously. But it's not as though there's no hope here because in verse six, we find unbelievable opportunity to experience and receive the grace of Christ. Verse six, but he gives more grace. If you're a person who underlines little statements in your Bible, you might wanna underline that one or just write that down. Or that could be the one singular takeaway that I would hope that you would grab a hold of today, but he gives more grace. Could there be more hopeful words than those? <laughs> Probably not. Let me unpack each of those. But he gives more grace. First, the word but. 
It's a significant word in the Bible. It denotes a contrast, a change, an alternative. For those of you who've been around College Park for a while, you remember that the word but was one of Pastor Joe Bartimus's favorite words, and rightly so. Seen ornaments in his office with the word but on it for Christmas. I literally had a Christmas ornament that said the word but on it. It's pretty cool. Why? Because the word but is so important in the Bible. It indicates we're going down one path and then God intervenes and we're going down another. For instance, Ephesians 2, 4, but God being rich in mercy made us alive together with Christ. What's more, every lament in the Bible has a turning point. It moves from, God, have you forgotten about me? Or how long, O Lord? Psalm 13 turns, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. The word but means that there's an alternative option. There's another path. And for many of us, the challenge, when we get into a conflict, when we get into controversy, when we get into difficulties, when we're scared and frustrated, when we're fearful, the challenge is that so many of us believe the lie that my only option out of this is to somehow be sinful. When tensions and fears and conflicts emerge, it provides an opportunity to be reminded of God's ability to help us. So let me just put it this way. In the next week, you must not believe the lie that your only option is to sin. A lie from the devil would be to convince you my, the only way that I could win this, the only way that I'm gonna be able to make my way through this conflict, the only way that I'm gonna be able to, to kind of respond to what's going on is to be sinful. Your only option is never just to sin. But, next word, he. Obviously this word is in reference to God himself. It's important to remember that this is God. This is God who can help us. You think your boss is powerful? <laughs> you think your company's bottom line is powerful? You think your state, your nation is powerful? Here is the God of all creation who comes to personally help us. Psalm 27, one, the Lord is the, my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? It's like the psalmist is talking to his own heart. He's like, don't you know God's in control? Why am I afraid? But he gives, here's the next word. Here's something incredibly important that we're reminded that the gaps in life that are created because of a broken world and because of our desires that don't always get fulfilled these gaps are there as a reminder that God is able to give us what we need. In fact, I think sometimes, maybe even more often than we realize, that God builds gaps into our lives in order to remind us that we need something that only he can give. I mean, imagine if your life was exactly the way that you wanted it all the time. If there was always certainty and no fear and everything you desired you could have, you would live your life without any understanding and even acknowledgement that God was necessary. You could live yourself as God without gaps. God builds gaps into life to remind you that you're not in control. He builds gaps into our lives in order to remind us that we are not God. 
So fellow Christian, could I just ask you to look at the gaps of your life and rather than bemoaning them, rather than being frustrated by them, rather than complaining about them, can you see the gaps and say, God, I thank you for this gap because it reminds me how much I need you. He gives, but he gives, I'm gonna put the word grace first, then we're gonna come to more, but he gives Grace, what is grace? Grace is simply the ability and desire to do God's will. It's unbelievable that we would ever want to do the right thing. It's the favor, the grace of God that means that you are, if you're a Christian and put your trust in Christ, you've repented of your sins, it means that your sins are forgiven. It means you're in a right relationship with your creator. And it means, just think of this, that God has placed within you, this is the miracle, sometimes we take this for granted, but God has placed within you a desire to do what's right. Even now as I'm talking about this text, we're talking about things where the Bible just called you an adulterer, The Bible warns you about friendship with the world, and the crazy thing is, is that when his grace comes upon you, you hear that and say, that's true. (laughs) Do you know how strange that is? The natural inclination would be to say, you call me a spiritual adulterer? You're telling me that I'm a friend with the world? And the powerful thing that happens is that when God's grace comes into our lives is suddenly there is, not perfectly, but there is fundamentally a desire to follow Jesus. A few years ago, I was reading a book by Dallas Willard and he gave me this line that has helped me so often that grace to the godly is like breath. What does that mean? It means that every day we live our lives with this awareness that God is able to give me grace. And then the text says he's able to give us grace even more, but he gives more grace. James desires for us to understand that the miracle of God is not just that he's poured out his grace upon us in Christ, but he's also ready to pour out even more grace upon us. Grace upon grace upon grace, One of the lies that we could believe is that somehow in our sinful conflicts or in our fears or in our frustrations that we're going to run out of God's grace. When I think back of moments when I'm deeply frustrated or really discouraged, even despairing, the lie that I'm believing is this is more than God's grace can handle. This is not true. Some of you are here today and you're deeply discouraged. And rightly so, life has been hard. You've had big gaps in your life, gaps like you've never seen before. Problems at home, problems with with maybe at work, challenges with relationships, problems out in the world, problems inside the church, and you can just feel so weary and discouraged. And one of the lies that you might believe is my problems are bigger than God's grace. No, they're not. They're not. In our pride, in our panic, in our fear, we can turn from God's grace and say, I need to do things my own way. And in so doing, we take ourselves out from the channel of God's help and assistance. So one of the critical questions that we need to ask ourselves is this, do I want blank or do I want God's grace? Do I want 
safety? Do I want security? Do I want affirmation? Or do I want God's grace? Because oftentimes the battle within our soul is as simple and as complicated as that question of what is it that I want and do I want this or do I want God's grace? I just want people to understand me or do I want to be misunderstood so I can receive God's grace? I just want a marriage and a family without all this conflict or is it that that conflict is designed to help you remember about your need for God's grace? I want children that always respect me and honor me. Well, that's a dream world. but God's grace is available to you. I just want to be sure that my employer is always going to take care of me. That'd be nice. Or do you want to trust God who controls all of the economy? You see, the question is, to what extent do we live in the channel of God's grace? Which is why this text is so incredibly helpful. But he gives more grace. Some of you are going to need that phrase this week, I promise. Someone sends you an email, you're going to be like, hmm and you're ready to roll, and you need to stop and say, but he gives more grace. Someone's gonna get in your grill this week, and you're gonna be tempted to practice the dark arts. You're gonna pull out that file, you're gonna be like, I'll tell you what I think, or I'll tell them what I think, and you won't know what I think until you hear it from them, and you know how to play that game. Or you can take a step back and say, but he gives more grace. James concludes verse six with this warning and promise. It says, God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. I mean, that's just so clear, right? God gives a stiff arm to the proud man or woman because he wants us to learn that we can trust God for what we need. And so the battle to follow Jesus in the middle of difficult times or in the middle of conflict is is really challenging or as simple as, am I going to be proud or am I going to be humble? And when you choose humility, it's risky because often other people aren't humble. You're like the only person being humble in your office and then you get kind of proud about it, you gotta get humble again, right? To respond in humility to a conflict with your spouse, the risk is they're not gonna change. Humility doesn't feel like it works. And that's the point. Because God works. And he works in ways that are reflective of his grace. But he gives more grace. Last week I invited you to ask three questions as it relates to fights and quarrels. What do I love? What makes me frustrated? Where might pride be involved? This week, I want to challenge you to remember one key thought. He gives more grace. You're here today, not yet a Christian? Friend, you haven't even tasted of the beauty of what happens when God's grace envelops your life. We'd we'd love to have that conversation with you and help you understand how the grace of Christ fills the gaps between our performance and God's requirements And when grace comes, you don't live by performance anymore, you live by promise. And that's revolutionary. You live not out of the obligation, I have to do this, you live out of the sense of I want to, and it's crazy that I want to do this. 
That's what happens when Jesus comes. He changes the heart from the in, he changes you by changing your heart from the inside out. To those of you who are Christians, can I remind you that the receiving of God's grace didn't just end when you put your trust in Jesus. It's something that you continue to experience the overflow of his kindness to you, and you need to be reminded every day that he can give you more grace. Let me give you some examples. See what fits in your life. Listen, when you feel alone, he can give you more grace. When you wanna strike back, he can give you more grace. When you feel angry and want revenge, he can give you more grace. When you're scared and feeling vulnerable, he can give you more grace. When you need to absorb unfair treatment, he can give you more grace. When you're battling worry about your future, he can give you more grace. When you need to be lovingly truthful, he can give you more grace. When you need to be kind and tenderhearted and forgiving, he can give you more grace. When you're tempted to slander and revile back, he can give you more grace. When you need to stand up for what's right and do it in the right way, he can give you more grace. When you're feeling insecure, he can give you more grace. I could go on and on and on and on. The reality is there is nothing you face that you don't have grace for, nothing. So when controversy or conflict are in the air, faithful followers of Jesus take seriously the call, I don't wanna be a friend of the world, I wanna be a friend of God. I don't wanna be a, a spiritual idolater. I want to be a person who's faithful all the way to the end. And the way in which you do that is by living on the promise, but he gives more grace. So before you fall into panic or fear or frustration or sinful responses, can you just come underneath, let's just call it the umbrella of God's grace, and to be reminded that you're safe and protected and empowered and affirmed and righteous because God loves you. He's not gonna abandon you. And when you choose the path and the way in which Jesus lived, God is ready to help you and rescue you. But he gives more grace. Lord Jesus, we come and so many ways in which this particular passage is so relevant to both where we live and what we need. And so Lord, would you grant us today the faith and ability to apply this text to whatever it is that we feel a gap in our lives. So Lord, wherever we feel like there's just not enough, would you remind us, Lord, you could help me. Lord, for some, those are really personal dynamics. Some of the words that I just read are, are, are deeply internal, like insecurity and fear and doubt and frustration. Lord, thank you that there's never anything in life that we face that there isn't sufficient grace for. 
So Lord, help us today to follow you faithfully. Help us to know how it is to apply this text. Grant us just another week as we go into Easter to be reminded that you can give us grace for whatever we face. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.